If you're able, stand with me in honor of the word of God as I read Mark 11, 11 through 21. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Hi, welcome here to Grace Harvest Church. It's good to be back. I had a couple of Sundays off and traveled with the family and had a, a blessed and good time away, but it's good to be home. It's always good to get back home. We're continuing our journey through the uh, Gospel of Mark, and we are in chapter 11. Uh, this begins the final week of Jesus's life. That was always interesting to me that the Gospels spend a third to a half of their letter talking about the last week of Jesus's life. So we're already in that last week. And today, in 11, Jesus has uh, what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, riding in on a donkey. This happened in Mark 11, leading up to our text today. We are going to look at two pretty controversial acts in Jesus' ministry. I mean, most a lot of people agree with this Jesus that up to this point has... Uh, used his power and miracles to help, heal, uh, do all these things. But today, uh, he cleanses the temple and curses a fig tree. And these are the, especially the cursing of the fig tree, is the only example of Jesus using uh, his power and miracle in a negative sense. Um, and so, well, there's been a lot of discussion about this. It's real interesting. I hope you'll enjoy this journey as we uh, dig in uh, to God's word. I titled this The Curse and the Cleansing. Uh, that's the two stories here that are interwoven, this fig tree. I'm going to call it the tree in the temple, if you like that one. 
uh, but there's this curse of the fig tree and there's this cleansing of the temple. Those are the two stories we're going to delve into to reveal something about Jesus, maybe that we don't like to look at or see or, or try to avoid. But God's word is here and we're going to dig into it and discover it today. So our first verse that I included in this text was from Mark 11, 11. It was the end of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it reads, and he entered Jerusalem. So he's ridden in on, on this lowly and humble on this donkey. He's in, and so he enters into Jerusalem and he, he went into the temple, it says. So this is the conclusion of the triumphal entry. He walks into the temple and it says he looked around at everything. But as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he just walks in the temple after this huge ordeal of, you know, having this donkey and riding in and people shouting, Hosanna, all that. It just says he walked in the temple, looked around. It's getting late. Better get back to Bethany. That's where they were staying. Takes the disciples and they go back. That's it. Nothing done. But you see some wheels spinning up there right looked around hmm maybe planning for the next day and this is what's going to happen the next day okay we're going to read about this fig tree that he wakes up that next morning and is hungry so it's this interesting thing that we sing about today we're going to discover the character of Jesus which is very deep you're like people that are hard to discover, you know, you're just kind of trying to, they're a hard nut to crack, you know, they're deep and they have all these different, and you're trying to, that's like Jesus, you're digging into someone who is uh, the, the most unique uh, person in all of history, someone who is all God and all man, and we're digging into Jesus, and uh, here he is, uh, we sing about him today as the lion and the lamb. You know, who has that combined as one character? Who is both king and this lion that has this majesty and also this sacrificial figure? This is Jesus. Uh, in the book that we're reading in our men's Bible study by Tim Keller, Jesus the King, where he's going through Mark, he quotes uh, this and says this, uh, Jesus was king, but he didn't fit into the world's categories of kingship. He just doesn't fit in what anyone would think would be a king. And not only that, he didn't fit into any of the categories they had for who the Messiah would be. He just didn't fit into his own disciples' category. He didn't fit into the Pharisees, scribes, the Sadducees. He didn't fit into the Romans' idea. He didn't fit into anyone's categories of what a true king would look like because he's both full of a kingly majesty and also meekness. He's just rode in lowly and humbly on a donkey. And that just didn't look, you know, uh, kingly. And Tim Keller quotes from a Jonathan Edwards sermon, real powerful sermon on the excellency of Christ. What was his title? That's a good title. The Excellency of Christ. And Shalom read from Revelation today, and this was based on Revelation 5, 5 through 6, his sermon, and where John is told, look, the Lion of Judah, 
the lion. And he looks to see a lion. But in the midst of the throne is a lamb. This, as Jonathan Edwards uh, meditates on this, he says, the lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and his voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience. The lamb is sacrificed for food and clothing. But we see that Christ in the text is compared to both because the diverse excellencies of both are wonderfully met in him. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one like him. You ever, you know, like go to the parade and maybe little kids are around, maybe some of them are yours or your grandchildren and you pick them up on your shoulders to let them see things? That's what this is about. It's like getting up and being able to see the excellencies of Jesus. I mean, every day is new to discover his mercies that are new. Every day is new to see his glory. Every day is new to discover the excellencies of Christ. So let's, let's climb up and see him in his word today as lion and lamb. In Jesus we find perfect justice and yet boundless grace. The Bible emphasizes the boundless grace of God in Jesus. It emphasizes his steadfast love over and over again, but it also brings out the justice of God, that God is holy and just, and he is righteous in all his ways, and that includes his judgment. That's what's happening today. We're going to get a taste of this justice of God and the judgment of God. That is very real and is very truth too. So the story goes on in, in verse uh, Mark 11, verse 12, and it says, On the following day, so remember he's walked around in the temple. Now he's coming that following day, leaving Bethany. And he is hungry, it says. When they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. That's a good title for the sermon, Nothing But Leaves. <laughs> found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now keep that in mind. He said this in front of the disciples so they could hear it. So what is he doing there? You know, he's teaching all the time. He's always teaching. So he's teaching his disciples something. They heard it. He said it. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and bought in the temple. So you have the fig tree, now you're going into the temple. The curse of the fig tree, now he's going in to cleanse the temple. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, so here's a summation of his whole teaching and sermon. You guys would probably like that, right? 
if I took my whole sermon and summed it up in one sentence, be like, yes, let's go eat. Well, this is it. This is Mark's summation of the sermon that day of what Jesus preached in verse 16. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? It's a good way to start with a question. That's how rabbis always taught, was with questions, answering questions, asking questions. That's what he asked. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. That is, kill him, destroy him. For they feared him because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And then it goes back to the fig tree. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This is a miracle withering. I don't know if you get that. This didn't just slowly, the leaves aren't just kind of, you know, wilting. It's dead as a doornail. It's a, it's a miracle. The, the thing is dead down to its roots. It's dead, crisp for firewood, dead. Like that. Look! I mean, that's what's astonishing. It's withered to its roots. It's dead. So we see this fig tree and the temple and then the fig tree. That's the story of our text today. The fig tree we want to look at as an object lesson. The prophets all through the Bible taught object lessons. They took an object, taught through it, then went and carried out an action, then went back to the object and taught on it. Jesus is very much prophetic. He's in a prophetic role, a prophetic style here. Yes, he is king of all kings. He's the prophet of all prophets. He's the priest of all priests. And here he's acting and teaching very much in a prophetic-like style. And he curses this fig tree in front of his disciples so they can hear it. Then he goes in, he cleanses the temple, he teaches about why he's doing what he's doing. And in these two stories, we get a portrayal of Jesus that maybe at first glance and maybe just shallowly looking over doesn't appeal to us and we don't like. A lot of people don't like this. A lot of people don't like this story. Very few people even mention it if they do want to say something good about Jesus. They wouldn't mention these stories. There's um, R.C. Sproul, when he's preaching on this subject, and he goes really deeply into the fig tree, when he's teaching on this, he brings up Bertrand Russell. He was a mathematician, philosopher, great Nobel Prize guy. I mean, just was really in the public eye with his, um, uh, you know, whole uh, information to the influencing public and culture and everything. And so he did this... Uh, teaching one day and uh, it basically became a pamphlet and it was entitled why I am not a Christian so very influential intellect and he took that or you know people took his essay and put it into a little pamphlet 
he gave the the speech back in uh, March of 1927 um, in England. Uh, and it was published that year, like I said, as a pamphlet. And it's been republished several times. Um, and in that, one of his uh, main things about not accepting Jesus as a good moral character to follow was this story of the fig tree. And he breaks it all down. You know, Jesus just shows up with this fig tree and curses it. It's not even in season. To get, who is this? Who would want to follow this guy? Who would want to be a Christian? This is why I'm not a Christian. And so people... Uh, dig into these type of things, look at it in, in a very, of course, skimming over the top of it, not digging down into what Jesus was doing, how he was teaching, putting it into the context, nothing, just curses a fig tree out of, out of uh, season, and who would follow this guy as a, a moral character? He goes on to say, you know, Buddha and some of these other people are better moral teachers than he was, you know. And so what is going on here? Uh, this curious story of was it the right time for figs? If it wasn't the right time for G uh, uh, figs, why was Jesus blaming the tree? Um, and so we need to look at this a little bit and see what was Jesus doing. Yes, he was trying to teach something. And here's um, several commentaries, the majority of commentaries when they dig in to this, when they look at the fig tree, is that Jesus knew the area he grew up in better than anybody. So he knew fig trees better than any of us know fig trees. And he knew the area better than any of us know the area. So Jesus knew what he was doing when he was approaching a full-leafed fig tree looking for fruit. Okay, he knew what he was doing. And here's some of the examples. Tim Keller brings out, along with a lot of the commentaries, that if we don't know much about figs, that fig trees uh, don't flower. They, uh, their flower is inverted, and that's what you're eating when you eat a fig. It's an inverted flower. And to even pollinate it, a wasp has to crawl in there and die in there and pollinate it, and its eggs are in there, and it consumes its exoskeleton. You guys want to eat a fig? You know, it's really good. They're very popular in the Bible, mentioned over 50 times. They're great. And so a fig tree, what it would do, was it would have these little nodules on it, these little buds that would come out, little bumps. And then it would leaf. And so it was a very popular tree to approach for travelers when it was in leaf because they knew that these little nodules were on it. And those nodules were the beginning of the figs, and you could scrape those off and eat them, and they were actually really good and highly nutritious. Figs are very highly nutritious, uh, a great food and fruit. And so most commentaries say Jesus was looking for those nodules because everybody knew when a fig tree was in leaf, it had these nodules, not the figs. The figs weren't in season. That's what it's saying. That's later at the end of summer when they, those become the figs. So that's probably the best and most common explanation. There's another uh, combination that R.C. Sproul gives because he's a real digger into things, had all these great elderly scholars, people that were in Palestine, whole area, and they, they knew that there was different species of fig trees also. And he really believes that it was actually a type, a species of fig tree that Jesus was familiar with. They were very familiar with trees, agriculture, growing, how to eat when you're walking along a journey, where trees are, where the, the, the places you can draw water, everything. Uh, basically, where you could get free food all the time, trees growing all around you. And so there was a different species of fig tree that 
did produce figs earlier in season, and they were producing figs when they were in full leaf. So R.C. Sproul believes he was approaching a fig tree, had discerned the species of it, and knew it was a type of fig tree that had fruit on it. And you might not care about either one of those, but here's the point. Jesus knew the area. He knew fig trees, and he knew fig trees were in leaf. Whether he was going to eat the nodules or actually eat a fruit of a different species of tree is not the point. The point is, he was expecting fruit on that tree rightfully because it was in full leaf. Full leaf figs had fruit on it, whether it was the nodules or a different species with the actual figs on them. He went expecting fruit rightfully. Anybody would. And he takes all his disciples up there, and he's hungry, and he goes up, and this is a beautiful fig, it says, in full leaves, and no fruit on it. Tim Keller brings out that's usually about when a fig tree was going to die. It would produce its final leaves, and then no fruit, and then die anyway. Those things don't necessarily matter. Because Jesus isn't teaching about figs and how to find fruit on them. What he's teaching his disciples is, this is a beautiful tree. We're going up expecting something from it because we're hungry. And we're walking and there's nothing to eat on it. And I'm disappointed because it drew me. It looked beautiful on the outside. It said, everything, come and eat from me. And he got there and there was nothing on it. That's the point. And he says, no one will ever eat fruit from you again. And that tree, he cursed that tree to die. The miracle of his power was used to curse a fig tree to its death, to its roots. And that's what Bertrand Russell didn't like, but he didn't understand the depth of the reasoning or the teaching. He was just looking for an out of why he didn't want to become a Christian and why he wasn't, and promoting that teaching to others about why not to be a Christian. But Jesus is doing something here, and it's interwoven with what has happened with the temple We see the temple has a history too. And what was happening here in verse 16 where Mark 11, 16 says, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. What do you think was happening there? This whole outer courts of the temple is where he's at. This outer court was the only place Gentiles could come. They could not go past that outer court. Only Jewish and Jewish men could go in beyond that point. But this was the place where the where everything was happening. But it was supposed to be happening good. It was supposed to be, even in that Gentile court, a place where Gentiles could wander in and sense somehow the fruit of what it meant to experience God in his presence. And you know what they were experiencing? And Jesus walked around and looked in there earlier. He walked around the day before and looked, and he saw, and he knew. It wasn't a quick rage. It wasn't a quick temple. In another gospel, it says he wove a cord. He sat there in time. It wasn't an instant just rage thing of Jesus going through. It was a well-thought-out plan of expressing the provoked anger of God for someone that is doing something that is totally against what God created it to do. And he created and established the temple for a provisional place for his spirit to dwell, and for people to experience the presence of God. And you know what they were experiencing? A busy marketplace. Not only a busy marketplace, but a place where people were cheating in greed to get more right there. And what were they doing also? In the verse uh, here, it says, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple because people were using it for a shortcut. They were just walking through the temple carrying stuff because if you were going from one part of Jerusalem to another rather than walking around the temple and carrying something, you're like, I'm going to take a shortcut and just walk through these Gentile place. 
this Gentile court. I'm carrying this big deal. Who cares about the Gentiles out here in this area? It was a sign of disrespect to a, the temple and to the place where Gentiles were supposed to be able to see God in his presence. And what were they seeing? People using it for a shortcut. And Jesus would not allow any. They were coming in the gate. Drop that. You ain't carrying. Go around. He was stopping people from carrying stuff through the temple. Next, what he did was he turned over the money changers' temples. The money changers are like a change of currency. People were coming from all over the region to meet God. Gentiles might come and say, let's see what this temple is about. Maybe this God of Israel is real. Maybe he's a true God. And they come in and they get taken advantage of to buy, you know, a, a, an animal because they didn't travel with them. That would have cost even more to try to travel with an animal, care for it the whole way there to offer for a sacrifice. Then they were taken advantage of in the money exchange. And there's all kinds of information you can read about that, about how they were taken advantage of, how certain coins had more silver in them than others, and they knew it, like we're exchanging this for that, and giving them a bad deal. It's like when you exchange your money and you travel abroad. And you walk in, you don't want to go to the first place in the airport, right? Because they're going to give you a bad. You want to go somewhere where you can exchange that money at a decent rate. But there's other people that are like, yeah, we'll exchange it right here. All right, come on. You know, because they're wanting to make that extra percent. That's what they were doing. That's what Jesus saw in the temple. It was not a place where the Gentiles had it. And he cleansed it. He turned over those money changers. He drove them out. He drove the animals out. He said, this isn't what the Gentile, uh, you know, area this common area was supposed to be. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be where Gentiles can actually pray. And there was no prayer going on. There was nothing spiritually happening in this area. And Jesus was expressing the just and righteous anger of God upon his own temple for them not bearing the fruit of what he meant it to bear, to be a place where people could see and experience the presence of God. The temple was just being used for selling animals, a place, a marketplace, a den of robbers and thieves, a place where people were being taken advantage of. Can you imagine? The place that represents God, and it's used for these purposes. That's what Gentiles come in and see. Wow, this is the God of Israel? Wow. Just another bunch of thieves, greedy lovers of money, just like the rest of us, yeah. Not experiencing or approaching the Lord's presence at all. Not experiencing prayer, where they could have one-on-one -on -one relationship with God and pray to Him. They had made it a den of thieves, not a place of prayer. Hebrews tells us, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we, may, we receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you think that kind of prayer was happening? That wasn't happening. They weren't finding mercy and grace in their time of need. They weren't being able to find prayer. Prayer is that intimate connection with God and experiencing his presence, and that was nowhere to be found. And Jesus, to say it mildly, did not like it at all. And he expressed the true nature of God in these actions, both upon the fig tree and in the temple cleansing it. Tim Keller says this. The temple starts all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Just looking at the history of the temple, think of the garden as a place, as a sanctuary where the presence of God dwelt. Where God would come and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening, where his presence dwelt. It was a paradise because there was no death, there was no deformity, evil, there was no imperfection. 
they can't exist with God's perfect presence. In the presence of God, there is shalom, this absolute flourishing where everything is working as it should be. That is this shalom, this joy, this bliss, this fulfillment, this absolute perfection. But the first humans, Adam and Eve, sinned, and they were banished from the garden. And when they were banished, in, in, in Genesis 3.24, God drove them out. It says he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way back into the tree of life. See, the only way to get back in was to be past that cherubim and to pass his flaming sword, which went in all directions, just slice you to pieces. You wouldn't even see it coming. There was no way back in. That's what that is saying. The, slain, the flaming sword is the sword of eternal justice. There is no way to get back in here but through a just penalty for your sin. It's God's eternal justice waving that sword. If you want back in, you're going to have to come underneath the sword. But God created a provisional solution because he wants to dwell with man and he wants to dwell with all of mankind. And so he chooses a people and he has them establish a tabernacle. And it's designed like the one in heaven. And they build it. And it's a place where God's spirit can come and dwell. And God can still dwell amongst the people. But they have to come in for underneath the sword. They have to come, they're coming back into God's presence. But the only way back in is through sacrifice. They have to take knives, swords, cut, blood. Sacrifice has to be made before a high priest can go in once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and offer that sacrifice. So only that is the way back in. And God's given that provisional means. Like, it's temporary. It's temporary, but it's the way, the tabernacle. Then David wants to establish something more permanent, so he builds a whole temple, and a permanent temple. And it's built just like the tabernacle, in, in the same form that God gave Moses, the exact specifications. It has this Gentile court, this area, the holy place, and the holy of holies where God meets, comes down and dwells. David uh, buys this land. Uh, most people believe in the same place that, that Abraham offered up Isaac. And then uh, this is where the temple mount uh, was and where the temple was built. And so all of this is happening to show that God still wants to dwell with his people. Jesus is walking into a restored, rebuilt temple because that temple of Solomon was destroyed by the Babylonians, uh, stripped of all of its majesty, glory, burned of all of its gold, all of the artifacts, and they were drugged to Babylon, the most devastating act in history. And then when they returned 70 years later, they rebuilt the temple, but the old men cried who had seen the temple before because it wasn't near the glory of Solomon's, but it was a rebuilt nice temple. Herod took this temple under Rome's authority, took a lot of taxes from people and restored some of its glory, spent several, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of rebuilding the temple, and Jesus is in that temple in our text, that rebuilt temple that Herod restored. And he sees this. He walks in, and instead of the presence of God, it's just a big marketplace. All of that. The history of the temple. And Jesus turns it over. And we read in John 
in John's example of this that Jesus talks about his own body. Because they said, why are you doing this? In John's example. And Jesus, give us a sign that you have this authority to do this and turn over all these tables and do all this. Why are you doing this? Their whole livelihood is wrapped up in this. It was Josephus who wrote that one year during the week of the Passover, over 255,000 lambs were slaughtered. Can you imagine the money in that? Exchanging 255,000 lambs, purchased money, ripping people off in the exchange and all of that. I mean, this is big business. It's big church business. And they're threatening it. And they're out to destroy you. That's their reaction to the gospel. You're going to have some reaction to the good news of Jesus. You're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. And they hated it. And they went out and sought to destroy him, it says. And so all this happening with the selling and the buying and the selling, he's combining it to the, the tree. And what is he saying? He's pronouncing judgment on it. Later on, and in another place in Matthew 3, 10 through 12, this is what John the Baptist said. He tried to tell people the Messiah would be both of these characters, the lion and the lamb. He said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is what John the Baptist prophesied about the Messiah in Matthew 3, 10 through 12. And he went on to say, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Yes, yes, yes. But here's what John says next. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, and he will gather wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's the part people don't like, that Jesus is also judge. John is declaring that unbelievers will burn with an unquenchable fire. Jesus preaches on hell. That was a big thing that Bertrand Russell did not like. He preached all through that about Jesus talking about hell. said, who would you want to follow this guy that talks about an eternal hell? But people don't like it. Sometimes Christians struggle with it and don't like it. But this is part of the nature of God, that justice, right justice, right judgment, Right and just judgment will be done. And John uh, declares that through his speaking of Jesus. Matthew five twenty nine, Jesus says, you know, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus is talking about hell. He's talking about judgment. He's talking about every way to avoid judgment. Do whatever you have to to avoid judgment. He's calling people to repentance, the importance of repentance, and he's warning them very strongly, and he's taking his disciples on this journey with this fig tree and the cleansing of the table uh, of the temple to say, judgment is coming, and it's here now. This is the closing thing he does in his final week before the cross. The prophets warned of judgment. Jeremiah 7.20 said, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon trees of the field. Lord, I was judgment on that tree in that field. And the fruit of the ground, it will burn and not be quenched. See, no one liked the prophets. They didn't like anything they said. They didn't like it because it all had to do with God's right and just, righteous judgment upon sin. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear Jesus either. It was the same way. But Jesus is both. He's both 
this man that we've seen in Mark 1 through 10, and he is this man that we see in Mark 11 here. We need to escape this just and righteous wrath of God that is coming. We need to get back into the garden, and the only way past that sword is through Jesus. And he's upturning those tables, and he's saying this is the end of the temple. This is the end of sacrifices. This is the end of all of this. This is going to be destroyed. And he prophesies that in, in later in Mark. Um, he, uh, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus says that he begins to prophesy. And he, he goes out the temple, and they go, look at the temple. Isn't it beautiful? They're still, like, looking at the trees, the leaves. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another. In Mark 13, 1 through 4, it'll be destroyed, it'll be torn down. So he's going to continue this same lesson for like two more chapters about the temple being destroyed. And then he even mentions a fig tree again about knowing the season of figs in Mark 13. So this interweaving of the temple and the figs continue uh, through Jesus' teaching. And here's what Tim Keller says in Jesus uh, the King. Because the only way back in is through Jesus. And Jesus knows what he's about to do to bring them in. About what he's about to do to end the temple. He's saying, you know, the sign that he will give them is the sign of his resurrection. Destroy this temple. And John explains it. He was talking about the temple of his body. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise it, raise it back up. He's saying the temple is his body. Jesus There's this shift, he's saying, is coming, and he's teaching his disciples that. The temple will end, the sacrifices will end, and I and my death and resurrection will be the answer of the way back. It'll be the fulfillment of the sacrifices. It's not that Jesus and God didn't give the temple and those sacrifices for a provisional period of time. And he's saying it's now coming to an end. I'm going to the cross. I will be the final sacrifice. My body, my death and resurrection will be the final answer to end temple and end sacrificial uh, sacrificing of animals. And it did. And Tim Keller says this, the death of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is the greatest royal triumph in the history of the cosmos. I just want to say that over and over again and just meditate on it. What he did, the cost, when he was turning over those tables, the cost of of the judgment upon their lack of bearing fruit was, I'm going to bear fruit through my death. I'm going to die and be buried like a seed has to die and be buried in the ground to bring forth fruit, and I'm going to bring forth fruit. He's still bringing forth fruit today, amen? Jesus' death and resurrection is still bringing forth fruit, but it's it's a whole different thing. Uh, he brings out earlier that um, this sermon that Dick Lucas preached, and it was, it, it was an imaginary conversation between an early Christian and her neighbor in Rome. And the neighbor says, I hear you're religious. Great. Religion is a good thing. Where's your temple? Where's your holy place? And the Christian lady says, we don't have a temple. Why is the Christian? Jesus is our temple. No temple. But where do your priests work and do their rituals? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priest? 
But where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this, butters the pagan neighbor. And the answer is, it's no religion at all. This is the gospel. The chief priest knew it was coming, but when they heard it, in our text it says they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They just feared the losing of their power within the temple and their way of life, even though Jesus came to fulfill it all perfectly to meet its complete end in him. But they were blind to seeing it. Maybe we're blind today to see God's just and righteous wrath and judgment upon fruitlessness. Is he producing himself in you? This is the first fruit I want to see. Is he producing himself in you? Is Jesus becoming more and more in you? That's what it means to bear fruit. To bear fruit means to reproduce more of. Okay, so is he reproducing more of his character in you? Are you growing in him? We can't be stagnant. We can't be backsliding. You've got to be growing in him. You've got to be experiencing the life of Jesus. And he has to be reproducing his character in you. He's always working on something in us. Like, that's great, Bobby. Now let's work on this. I was waiting for you to finally get over that. Now, come on, let's, let's get, you know, this isn't your life. This doesn't look like me. You're not portraying me right here. Let's work on this in you. I want to bear fruit of my character in you. And that's what Jesus wants. And that's what he did not see on that fig tree. And that's what he did not see in the temple where they were supposed to be experiencing the presence of God and, his, and their characters being changed into the image of God. This is what Jesus wants in us. Is that happening? And the other multiplying factor is also just bearing fruit in numbers. More of it. I mean, he commands us at the end of Matthew to go into all the nations and make disciples. Make disciples. Not just let the character of Christ grow in you and become more and more like him, but become like him in somebody else reach out to somebody else go and make disciples of all nations see jesus cleansed that temple and he said this is to be a house of prayer for all nations everyone's supposed to come here and experience god and he's saying that through his church today church bear fruit don't let him come up to you and see all these beautiful leaves and see nothing but weeds i think it's okay to you know, clean up and look good, but not just leaves. He comes up, he's looking for fruit in you. Are you looking like me? Are you bearing this fruit? And are you going and helping somebody else see God? The whole nations, just like we read about, Shalom read about in Revelation 5. All nations, all tongues, all languages, all coming to know Jesus. We're pushing for that at Grace Harvest. Amen? Let us go and bear fruit. We're here to grow in being more and more like Jesus, more and more like Him, 
and abide and remain in him, and we will be fruitful witnesses of telling others of Jesus and going and making disciples of all nations. Amen? Raph, are you going to come here and help me? We're going to take communion and see a, sing a closing song together. Jesus did establish this with his disciples. And in the scriptures, it tells us to, when we come together, um, to do this, to take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, whenever you come together, remember the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what we want to do today by taking communion. And if you're a believer and you've put your trust in Jesus and you're saying, I want to be more like Jesus, Lord. Help me, Lord. Help me to be more like you. And as you make me to be more like you, help me to bear fruit. Help me to bring other disciples, teach others to follow you. And if you've experienced the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the saving grace through faith alone in Christ alone, you're welcome to come and take this communion together. And it has the grape juice, the fruit of the vine, and then beneath it, it has a piece of bread. So there's two cups there, and the bread is underneath. And we'll all come and take one of these, and then we'll hold it, and I'll say a prayer, and we'll take communion together. And so please come. Jesus was betrayed he took bread and gave thanks to the father for it and he said take and eat for this is my body given for you let us partake together
Thank you, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for willingly coming and for willingly going to the cross, submitting in the garden to not your own will, asking that the cup, that cup of the just and righteous wrath of God to pass from you, that you submitted and said, not my will, but your will be done. Thank you, Jesus, for your body that was given for us. Thank you for your body that we enjoy the presence of God within because we're in you and you're in us. You are that final temple. We thank you, Jesus, for your body broken and given for us. In like manner, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood given for you for the remission of sins. Take and drink of it. And when you do, remember my death until I come. Let us partake of the cup together. <clears throat> Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you gave your one and only Son, the eternal Son of God, for us sinners, us rebellious creatures on this earth. You did it because you loved us. You did it because you came to redeem us. And there's no hope outside of the sacrifice you've offered in your Son, Jesus. He is our only hope in life and in death. And we thank you. So much, Jesus, for shedding your blood for us, that you demonstrated your own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. You gave yourself for us. We love you. We praise you. Help us to bear the fruit of praise that gives praise to your name. In this closing song, Lord, just help us to praise you. That's one way we bear fruit as we praise you because your loving kindness is better than life we will lift up our voice and praise you the fruit of lips that give thanks to your name anoint us to do that now in Jesus name amen
he's received this benediction by the person and the power of the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son abide in you. The one true and living God has made his home in you by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice upon the cross. In Christ, you will bear much fruit and bring much glory to the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.